it began by looking at the data, as you might imagine. So just looking at the, the most common use cases for our technology. So as even as a SurveyMonkey self-serve subscriber, we give you access to templates where you can, you know, you can use the tool for various uh, different, you yeah, whatever yeah. you need, basically. It's everything from, you know, soccer moms doing their their poll on t-shirt sizes to, you know, the biggest questions the organization should be asking of their employees, of their customers, of their future customers. And so it was very clear in looking at the questions that were being asked that the two most common sets of use case were number one around customers. Sure. So NPS, for example, which led to the development of a product called CX. And then the second thing was around employees. Uh, yeah. And of course, given, you know, we're at full employment, companies really need to be understanding how their employees feel. From ProfitWell Recur, it's Protect the Hustle, a show about those in the trenches actually doing the work. I'm Patrick Campbell. And I'm Neil Desai. And on today's show, how Leela Sharinavasan powers the curious at SurveyMonkey as the first chief marketing officer at the survey software Titan. Talking about surveys, Neil. We're gonna talk about some surveys. Hey, don't even fake your your disgust there. You're forced no. to send surveys here, and you yeah. like surveys. No, you I like feedback. I like surveys. I hate taking bad surveys. Yeah, everyone take, hates taking bad surveys. But thankfully, not only because of our guest's company, but also because of what's happened in the market, we're heading into a world where bad surveys and simply just bad elements of getting feedback are going to the wayside. I, I think you're right. Slowly, but I think you're right. I have like yeah. 50 bucks in Amazon gift card credit from taking surveys of Enterprise SaaS from last week. That's awesome. <laughs> very, very cool. You're all about that money, Neil. That's what I love about you. Yeah. But our guest today, Leela, the CMO of SurveyMonkey, not only has a storied career in the world of surveys, obviously through SurveyMonkey, but also in marketing. Yeah, she's been a marketing leader for a while now, uh, being a senior marketer at LinkedIn in the early days, and most recently the CMO of Lever before joining SurveyMonkey. Yeah, and she was there prior to the IPO, which was a couple years ago now, I believe, mm -hmm. um, at least two or so years ago. Um, and has basically been, you know, dealing with a multifaceted team that not only has multiple products, but also has multiple personas for those multiple products and multiple value propositions for those personas for those multiple products. Not easy. So it's a pretty tough problem, especially when you're a public company. But we're also going to learn her spirit animal today. She's going to tell us that? She's Well, she's not. She's sort of going to tell us that. She's going to give us permission uh, to relay a couple of funny anecdotes about a really, really big award that she won at LinkedIn, as well as a spirit animal moniker that she received um, after being on a big panel at one of the Glassdoor conferences. But to kind of explain what in the world that all just meant, let's jump right into interviewing Leela here and have her tell us these stories. You won the Reed Hoffman Beanbag Award? Yes. What is that award and what's the story behind that? Well, let me think. This must have been in about 2012, 2013. Okay. Tremendous individual, but uh, decided that he was going to acknowledge people across the organization who exhibited LinkedIn's values and were basically culture carriers for the organization. And, you know, to this day, I'm, I still, when I worked at LinkedIn, I definitely drank the Kool-Aid. I you, you dispensed blue. it. I think I've heard yeah, you say I that. totally yeah, yeah, yeah. I still hold the organization in very high regard and have a lot of friends that, that still work there. And so, a little known fact about me at LinkedIn was I actually worked remotely for three and a half years of my four and a half years there. And that was quite unusual. I was fortunate to be grandfathered into an abnormal uh, arrangement and sure. it continued to work well. But I think what made it work well for me was I was so passionate about what I was doing that I people were continually surprised when I came back to campus that I didn't actually live and work in Mountain View or in San Francisco. Oh, that's wild. That's so cool. So 
I definitely, I feel like I earned that one because I yeah. really did internalize the mission, the vision, the values and the culture. Mm. And so I was one of the first crop of folks that literally got this giant beanbag in, okay. in LinkedIn blue and white colors. Awesome with the different values kind of like um, yeah. spread across it. So. It was in your home office at the time. It was or? in my home office at the <laughs> That's time, awesome. yeah. So on your Twitter profile, you've said that you were once described as a unicorn in a sea of raccoons. Isn't that priceless? I have, well, so I think it is, but I don't know what it means. So I don't know to go, oh, that's really insightful or that's re really weird. No, no well, like, it's, what, is, it's what probably, is that about? It's a mixture of both. So this yeah. was on the main stage at the Glassdoor Summit in, I think it was 2016. Mm -hmm. I was on a panel that was a discussion around employer brand, which, you know, again, to the, to the conversation around transparency in the web, it's sure. never been more important to think about how you're perceived as a place to work. So I was on this panel with uh, some, some very insightful folks and it wasn't just any panel though, it was a panel that was an improv panel. Oh, so there was sure. a giant goldfish bowl of random questions that oh, related wow. to employer branding somehow. Okay. And so the moderator, William Tinkup, would pluck one out and he'd cold call us on these questions. <laughs> and so, so I got involved in a very spirited debate around the importance of employer brand through the marketing lens and the fact that CMOs and marketing leaders should be sticking really close to their heads of talent, heads of recruiting, who typically are you know, thinking more about employer brand. Because in this day and age, and I think this is especially true in B2B marketing, it's very hard to, to dissect a brand and you can't really put employer brand aside. So you've got corporate brand and employer brand, they have to, they have yeah. to flow from one to the other. And if you have a really weak employer brand, if you're seen as a, if you're perceived nev negatively as a place to work, that's actually gonna impact how customers, investors, future employees think about you. So I think the, the impact of that does spill through to your overall marketing efforts. So my point was simply that as a CMO, I can't help but be overly focused on employer brand because it impacts our entire business, which earned me sort of this label that I was a unicorn in the sea of raccoons, okay. which doesn't speak very highly of other marketers, sure, but sure, sure. I think it was meant to be a compliment there that I go. got it and not everyone in marketing does. I don't know what to say about the unicorn raccoon message. <laughs> I'm not sure I entirely get it, but... If there's one thing I, I get by those two anecdotes is that Leela is intense and committed. I think that she's one of those, you know, unicorns actually when it comes to actually hiring a senior marketing leader, because oftentimes senior marketing leaders are some of the hardest people to find because there's so many people who are quote unquote marketers, but they're not truly marketing leaders when it comes to actually running an organization, understanding all of the different idiosyncrasies of marketing, and then ultimately pushing a company forward when it comes to growth. Yeah. That, that's yep. all? That's all you got? No, no, I mean- I just made an eloquent point and that's listen, all you got? No, but I think it's, it, listen, the thing with Leela, I think it's really evident by her career, right? Whether it's oh, LinkedIn or SurveyMonkey. I mean, she's been leading teams and companies of all different sizes, constantly evolving, even SurveyMonkey today. Totally. Um, it's got to take a special person to be able to not only execute on the day-to-day -to -day today, but also plan for the next 5, 10, 15 years. Especially, and I imagine jumping into a company like SurveyMonkey that's 19, 20 years old at this point. <laughs> yeah. They're public. She was there before they went public, through going public, which mm -hmm. is just an experience in and of itself. And their first CMO. And Oh, yeah. And their first yeah. CMO, which is pretty wild. I think she's going to tell us a little bit more in this next clip. But to kind of set this up, I, I think we have to understand where SurveyMonkey is and just how hard of a marketing problem and just how truly a unicorn Leela is to basically be tacking not only a multi-product problem, but a multiple value proposition and a multi-persona problem like is the world of survey. 
how do you pick, all right, this is going to be for user experience. This is going to be for HR. This is going to be for this. Like, what was that sure. like process like? It began by looking at the data, as you might imagine. So sure. just looking at the, the most common use cases for our technology. Mm -hmm. So as even as a SurveyMonkey self-serve subscriber, we give you access to templates where you can, you know, you can use the tool for various uh, whatever different, you need. yeah, whatever yeah. you need, basically. And it's everything from, you know, soccer moms doing their, their poll on t-shirt sizes to, awesome. you know, the biggest questions the organization should be asking of their employees, of their customers, of their future customers. And so it was very clear in looking at the questions that were being asked that the two most common sets of use case were number one around customers. Sure. So NPS, for example, which mm -hmm. led to the development of a product called CX. Mm -hmm. And then the second thing was around employees. Uh, yeah. And of course, given, you know, we're at full employment, Companies really need to be understanding sure. how their employees feel. Yeah. And so that led to the birth of a, a solution called Engage. And was it something like you in a CMO role? It's got to be tough, like, because it's like, okay, so we, we only have like one website. <laughs> we have like maybe one blog. We have all this. Like, so when you're thinking about channels, yeah. and, and obviously from a sales and you come from a sales background, mm -hmm. You know, it's a little bit different because you can like set up different like this sales team, that sales team. Mm -hmm. But from marketing side, like how do you balance like the multi-product problem? Yeah, it's it's an excellent question. I mean, it's a little bit of what we faced at, at LinkedIn as well, where sure. I worked in the talent solutions business for four and a half years. But we also had marketing solutions. We had sales solutions. We had our core consumer business. So sure. sort of a similar challenge here. And so I think it is about, I mean, our, our, the core of our business remains our survey platform sure. and, and, you know, surveys, whether they're being used in sort of an enterprise context where you want things like single sign-on, for example, and the ability to reassign accounts that you own. So that's that will remain the core of our business. And as our website continues to evolve over time, that will still be front and center. But I think it's about gradually exposing people to different solutions, different use cases, different ways in which people are leveraging our technology for, for more specialized reasons. And then developing alongside the core site a set of additional web properties that allow you to go deep on yeah. what it means to really leverage, uh, operationalize CX and customer satisfaction and success throughout your organization and how we can help with that. Yeah, that's really cool because it's kind of the, the landing, we call it the hub and spoke model. Yes. Uh -huh. And what it basically means is like you have this hub, which mm -hmm. is exactly how you described. Anyone can come in from a soccer mom to a you know Fortune 500 CIO and both of them can basically get their surveys done for whatever you know he or she needs. And mm -hmm. then when you look at like that expansion across an organization, are you guys currently, like I know the products are like more recent coming to market, the more niche products. Like are you guys already thinking about hey, you know, John or Jane, you're using this, like introduce me to, you know, your HR person or introduce me to your UX researcher. Like, how's that process working or how is it envisioned, you know, if it's not quite there yet? Yeah, I think that's exactly, I mean, that's a big thrust of, of what we're looking at right now. So, I mean, I think there's there, there are two site types of land and expand, if you will. One is just that our core survey tool mm -hmm. Can, can proliferate throughout an organization because it's often yeah. being used in many different ways. And there's probably growth there because they Tons just use more, growth, more yeah. users, all these other things that you don't even necessarily need the niche products, but That's obviously right. it's a little bit of a different Because it's experience. super flexible. And so whether you are surveying internally or externally, if it's company level data that you're, that you're aggregating, yeah. at some point you actually want that to belong to the company. Uh, so similarly to when I worked at LinkedIn, you know, one of the reasons somebody would buy LinkedIn Recruiter over just letting their recruiters use individual subscriptions was when the recruiter left the building, so did that account, oh, right? And yeah. all the information, all the relationships that were built within it. And so I think similarly, when you're using survey technology on behalf of your organization, mm. if you just have an individual subscription, well, that belongs to you. And even if it's, even if you've paid for it, a you know, paid for it with a company credit card, it's in your name. And okay. so, you know, the data is yours, right? Yeah. And so that's a, that's a, you know, I think there are reasons to make sure that you put your best foot forward uh, from a data perspective as sure. well. So there's that. But then, yes, also, in addition, 
I think we are starting to see situations where companies, I mean, they know SurveyMonkey, they trust us as they're exposed to our solutions. It's easy for them to say, oh yeah, well, actually we should probably double down on CX and let, you know, what do you have for that? What I find fascinating about SurveyMonkey, and this happens to a lot of different companies, like all roads lead to just expanding beyond just self-serve or beyond just enterprise. It, it becomes basically this multifaceted approach where you have to have alignment not only in multi-product, we're seeing that more and more with HubSpot, Zendesk, Salesforce at all, but you also need to be multi-customer. You need to go after SMB, you need to go after a lot of different flavors of SMB, and then also go enterprise at some particular point. And this is what I think is very, very hard when it comes to a marketing team and just a, a, a company in general, because if you think of all that surface area that you have to have landing pages for, have product marketing for, like how you structure your team becomes really, really important because your team is ultimately going to be the thing or the, the let me say this more eloquently, the, the, the basically the fulcrum through which you're going to be able to go after all of these different fronts that might be within your business. I mean, I think just looking at the complexities that come, you take a Salesforce, for example, right? The pricing and packaging required to address multi-product and multi-customer just gets extremely out of control really, really quickly, right? So I think uh, not only being proactive and playing offense with those things while structuring your teams is is, is not easy. Yeah, and one, to, to kind of take a step back, I think one other thing that really helped SurveyMonkey kind of not have to have a CMO, you know, until this particular point um, or the past couple of years now, like before, right before they went public, was that the hub and spoke model works really, really well, especially in a, a rather nascent market. So when SurveyMonkey started, there was, you know, there was survey software, but it was typically very clunky, very kind of academic, very enterprise looking. Um, and not that it was enterprise, but it was just, you know, very sure. like clunky, as, as I kind of said. But SurveyMonkey came out and they made it very elegant, very easy. They might not have agreed, you know, 19 years ago versus what they have today. But it was one of those things where they were able to build this hub of basically this product, which was core surveys, Right. And I think that allowed people to basically just associate themselves with that research and associate themselves with with basically collecting information and collecting data. And they were able to scale that association through usage. And I'm sure they had problems when it came to episodic usage versus you know usage that was happening consistently. But now they're able to kind of right at the right time, right when Qualtrics is hot, some of these other survey companies are hot, they're able to kind of exploit in, in the best sense of the word these different kind of spokes of different types of people. And I think that's a really, really big lesson for folks to learn, which is sometimes it's okay to not necessarily have that hyper growth at a particular point if you're building that particular hub that's going to pay off into the long term. Sure. I mean, I think everyone from a Fortune 500 company to back in college when I was writing surveys for a school project, right? I think uh, there's so many personas that I think is using SurveyMonkey that they can benefit from sort of like that compounding effect over the years. Yeah, 100%. And this goes back to the team point that you were making, we were talking about, which I think is, is where we want to dig a little bit deeper with Leela because ultimately it's it's really hard to go after that hub and all of those spokes with all of the different products that SurveyMonkey has and all the different constituencies that SurveyMonkey goes after. And so let's learn a little bit more from Leela about structuring a marketing team and ultimately structuring a team to go after all of these different opportunities that you may have and prioritize them in the right direction. And when you think about 
like from a, like a structure organization. You know, you're, you're the first CMO at SurveyMonkey, yes. which is hard to believe given, you know, Isn't like it? 16 years, 19 years? Uh, I, I almost 19, a yeah, A couple of right. decades almost, yep. yeah. And so not that you've been here, but that the organization's been around. But you've you've gone from, you know, you were there early at LinkedIn. I think it was right around 500 employees when That's you were right. there. Mm -hmm. And then you were there all the way through, I think I read through like 6,500 employees. So it's like huge growth there. You were the you know lead marketer and CMO over at Lever, mm -hmm. and so you've kind of been in these organizations as they've evolved and as they've gotten bigger. Mm -hmm. Coming into an organization that's like 750 people, obviously has a lot of like viral growth built in. Like, how do you think about structuring your team or your initiatives? Like when you're yeah. seeing this problem of like proliferating across organizations. Yeah, it's it's a great question, and it's the thing. If anything's keeping me up at night, it's probably sure. that right now. Yeah, so, yeah. so we've been doing plenty of marketing, of course, and sure. we have a, a really strong set of marketers, but they hadn't been structured as a team. And I mean, this is one of the things I was thinking about in this notion of like protecting the hustle, right? As yeah, organizations yeah. scale and become more complex, it's it becomes harder and harder sometimes to stay in sync with one another to keep people informed so that you can really collaborate seamlessly. So that's that's one thing. The 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 antidote to that sometimes is having these massive meetings, yeah. which is just not not efficient at all. Before you know it, you're having these insanely expensive meetings and you're just slowing <laughs> down your progress. Yeah. Something I'm trying to instill in my team is when you when you we can't all be in the meeting. Uh, so choose a subset of people that should be in the meeting and their job then should be to proactively come out and kind of inform their sure. their colleagues. So so definitely trying to trying to structure in a way that helps us sort of retain our element yeah. of hustle and stay lean and stay agile. From an organizational perspective, because this push toward um, selling to businesses, so B2B type solutions is sure. relatively new, um, really doubling down on a team to help kind of drive that forward because I do think it's a different set of skills from our core business, which is a self-serve, you know, much more um, kind of online, uh, digital-driven business. It's a different motion, requires a different skill set, different mindset, very different level of partnership with a sales team, for example. Sure. So, Is there a sales team here? Yes. Or, okay, yeah. Yes, there is. Okay, because I was always curious because it was always, I mean, I remember SurveyMonkey from long time ago. I don't want to age myself too much, but it was like, you know, it's just the self-serve pro. Oh yeah, run a survey. Of course you survey monkey, right? right? And then now, you know, we're an organization, we send a ton of surveys. I don't know how much you know about our product, but it's survey based. Mm -hmm. And it's one of those things where we're using SurveyMonkey and we're using like a bunch of different tools, but it's really kind of fascinating to kind of see like how important like that research actually is. And to back up a second before maybe going down that rabbit hole, like are you when you look at like coming into Lever or you know being early at LinkedIn or now coming in at 750 and like growing from there. Mm -hmm. What, what's one? Which one's been harder? Or which one's been more, you know, thrilling? Or maybe not. That's not an unfair question. Oh, um, they're all thrilling. Yeah. Come on, yeah, yeah, yeah. don't do that to me, Patrick. Which one's a little bit harder? Like, what um, would you say? Well, I think there are different challenges with each of them, right? So yeah. LinkedIn, the primary. Ch I mean, we were just doing things that we had never done before, that the organization sure. had never done before, and at a pace that I probably didn't think was possible. You just, and I think that the, the secret there is being ruthlessly focused on your top priorities. And so I actually like, literally had a whiteboard next to my desk that had the three things that I needed to do in the first half of the year. And they were big projects. You know, one was launching a, a you know, our first um, subscription product product that was uh, focused on uh, recruiters, who was yeah. our target audience. One was like a big pricing overhaul and so forth. So yeah. each one was a big rock. But I found that when your team is really small, you just get pulled in a million directions. Yeah. And so if I had those things written down beside my desk, at some point in the day, whenever I got back to my desk, probably, you know, six or seven at night, I'd be like, yeah. oh, I haven't done anything to move that rock forward. 
let me think about, let me prioritize that one for tomorrow. Yeah. So I think, you know, ruthless prioritization was kind of the key there. So it was challenging, but just because of the lack of bandwidth and so many opportunities. And sure. I think that's probably true in business today as a whole, where yeah. we're bombarded, the pace is accelerating and we only have limited time. So how do you prioritize your time? Lever was a fun, different challenge. And I think you can contrast the, the brand recognition of a, a LinkedIn and of a SurveyMonkey mm. with Lever. Yeah. And one of the things that drew me to Lever <laughs> was my, the pool I feel from the talent talent industry. I'm very drawn to talent as uh, obviously the driver of businesses, but talent acquisition, I think, is just an underrated uh, it's function. It's impossibly hard as well. It's impossibly hard, right? And I, I, I've, over the years, I've become somewhat of a sort of standard bearer for the, you know, the talent acquisition yeah. leader, because I really think they do incredibly important work. So there was, there was that, but also the fact that the space that Lever operates in is sort of the applicant tracking system, uh, CRM space, is incredibly crowded. And when I went there, I, t- I actually talked to a couple of customers on the way in. I talked to a couple of analysts on the way in. The customers were just raving evangelists about this incredible product. The analysts were like, lever, is it lever or lever? We're not sure, we've, he- we've heard of it. We don't know what it does because no one's shown yeah. us. And so there was just this incredible gap in awareness in the outside world, unless you were using the tool. It was like yeah. a best kept secret. Which is kind of a great role for a marketer, right? Oh, it's fantastic. Yeah. When you have that customer evangelism underpinning it, which we did, yeah then there was clearly a huge opportunity there. So the challenge there was operating in a super crowded space with against much bigger competitors, but trying to carve out something that felt unique in terms of a voice and tone and really mobilizing this legion of super loyal raving customers. So that was a different sort of challenge just because of our size, but really fun one. And, uh, you know, building from scratch, there is an element of that that's easier because you can craft the team the team that, that, that you want to basically. And then coming here, I think, I mean, you know, this is month, close of month two for me. So, sure. so you know, uh, ping me again in, in three months and I have a different answer. But I think it's the challenge of getting up to speed on a business that is more mature and much more complex. Yeah. yeah, I mean, we have, you know, six or seven different products, for example, sure. with lots of different target audiences that we talk to. Mm. So sort of getting my arms around that and making sure that we do things in a smart way so that we're not just off operating in silos. Yeah. We're really thinking in concerted manner about our customers and what yeah. they might like to learn about how SurveyMonkey can help them. Change is hard. Yeah. That's, I mean, that's, and that's what, you know, makes Lila so fascinating and such a, you know, such a unicorn. And like, there's nothing necessarily that she's talking about when it comes to scaling a team, prioritizing that we probably haven't heard before, but that's what makes wisdom wisdom is that it's really, really hard to basically commit to that wisdom. And it's really easy to kind of just kind of go off and, you know, not prioritize, not be disciplined, um, et cetera. Especially because, like, we're finding this out here, the, the, the traits and the skills that brought us to this point yeah. aren't the ones that are going to take us to the next level, right? So you have to constantly be learning and evolving over the years. Yeah, I'm describing that at least this year, 2020. 2020 is the year <laughs> that I go from being a founder to being a CEO. That's, really? that's kind of how I'm thinking about life right now. Just because I think it's one of those things, like, when, when Lila talks about prioritization, when she talks about kind of scaling teams, when she talks about the difference between you know, when she was, you know, an early team at LinkedIn or early team at Lever going to 750 now thousand people plus, you know, over at SurveyMonkey, it, it is those executive things that that changes and that basically scales at each of those particular parts of, of a company and things like prioritization, things like not being reactive. These things don't go away and they're very, very helpful at every single stage. And I think that's where that's where Leela has, has been really, really successful. And that's something that we can take take away from her her learnings today. Mm-hmm. What do you think is the most challenging part of that evolution? Is it 
is it getting the team around you? Is it the no, it's just product? It's just admitting it, I yeah. think. You know, we didn't get into Lila's struggles as much um, in this particular episode, but I think that, you know, I, I, I hope that she was someone who just naturally knew, mm-hmm. you know, you have to give things up and you can't worry about the the fallout of giving things up and things sure. like that. But that's a that's a I'm sure, you know, that, that that's something that she struggled with, at least on some level, because it's so difficult, right? It's so difficult to be like, well, this made me successful here. And if you don't have a good team around you, if you don't have some sort of metrics or some sort of drive to always be getting better, it's really, really difficult to kind of realize and admit it to yourself because ego tells us, especially as an executive, ego tells us that we're always right because that's what made us successful. That's what brought us here. And for me, I'm just an incredibly insecure person. So that like helps, you know, basically kind of push me into this, you know, constant precipice between being like, you're not good enough. No, you are good enough. And like, so on and so forth. Sure. But I think that that's why alignment at this stage becomes even more important, right? As you sort of remove yourself from the trenches. Yeah. And I think one thing that Leela can actually, you know, teach us a lot about and in SurveyMonkey in general, and this goes into, you know, their core mission of, you know, powering the curious is, is really being curious about, you know, the data or the information that's out there. And one of the biggest fulcrums that exists are surveys, right? Yeah. And I think that what's kind of fascinating is everyone kind of doesn't like surveys. Um, and my theory is, and, and we've, you know, it's a little unfair because we've sent, you know, 50 million of these things or more at this point for our Price Intelligently product, is that we don't like surveys because we're terrible at sending surveys. But I also think it's because we didn't necessarily need to, you know, really look to surveys to power our curiosity in the past because the answers were a little bit more obvious. But I think Leela can give us a little bit more insight on this when, when she gets into, you know, why people don't send surveys as much as they should be and then ultimately what makes a good survey. We meet a lot of people who are like, oh, surveys. Like, why surveys, right? And we meet a lot of people who are, oh, it's just all going to be biased and all that type of stuff. Like, when you meet those people, or maybe you don't because you guys are the center of the survey universe, <laughs> like, what, what's your response to those types of to, types of folks? I, I think the response is you open the, if you, if you still read a newspaper, if you open Flipboard for the day and look at what's going on in the world, the world is just rife with examples of companies not listening to their key stakeholders. Mm. So whether it's, for example, I think United rolled out some crazy bonus scheme where it was like a lottery to get bonuses, mm. or whether it's you know some challenging ad that a company's run where it just it feels tone deaf, it falls really flat, and actually has the potential to backfire and cause negative sentiment toward that brand. Right? I mean the. It's everywhere, right? Yeah. Uh, you look at you know what's going on inside organizations where employees are not feeling heard and so are running their own surveys mm. to get that point across, right? It's, it's everywhere we look. And I think that sends a clear message to organizations that you have to be listening. You have to be thinking yeah. through the points of view that matter the most to you. And typically, as I said, it's customers, it's employees, yeah. it's two core cons- sets of constituents who are essential to the company's success. Right. And so if you're not listening to that feedback, then I think you run the risk of really um, committing a faux pas. And that can be internal and organizationally if you're not aware of how employees feel. And it can be externally and brand impacting if it's about uh, launching campaigns or doing something else where, you know, you're just getting the wrong kind of attention, basically. Yeah, that we're just going to play that on loop because that that was really good. (laughs) That was awesome. And, And when you're thinking about. Like, I mean, you've been in a number of different businesses throughout your career. 
why weren't surveys as prevalent, you know, 15 years ago, 20 years ago? Like, was it was it something where we didn't need to be because there was less information, less density, et cetera? Or was it kind of there, but we just didn't see it because, you know, the people who are really good, it wasn't, you know, as much of a thing to evangelize? I, you know, I'm not sure. I will say, I think surveys have been there for a sure. long time, but they've been pen and paper. And I still, you know, to this day, I still know events, people that yeah. rely on well, you know, yeah, the old-fashioned survey. Yeah. Send me an email. Like, yeah, exactly, yeah. exactly. Or, you know, now our, one of our latest innovations is QR codes. So basically, you're, if you're giving a presentation at a conference, put the QR code into the presentation. Anybody can, if they've got a new iPhone, can put up their iPhone and it will just take you automatically to that link. So yeah. it's super easy. It's never been easier to get feedback. Yeah, especially now that you don't have to download an app yeah. to, like, get the QR code. You can just use your phone. That's, that's right. Cool. Exactly, exactly. So, so I think there's... There's, there's a very simple, simple technological advancement that's happened. So there's a technological advancement, but also I think just the transparency of the world in which we live today, people have become more and more attuned to very real uh, perspectives on brands, on companies, what they're like to work for, yeah. uh, what their customer service is like, right? That information is out there already. Mm -hmm. So if you are not taking the step of being proactive yeah. in gathering that so that you can act on it before it becomes a problem, then I think again, you know, you, you have what you get what's coming to you. So, so uh, you know, there's something about just the, you know, the transparency of a web-driven world that I think has made surveys even more, even more important. So, Patrick, are you going to tell me to better understand the customer? Are you making fun of me right now? No, you're making fun <laughs> of me right now. No, <laughs> I can feel it. No, I think that's I think that's an important. I think that's an important aspect. I think that's what Lila's talking about. It's not just like understand your customer, but just understand that which you don't know. And I think that, as I kind of alluded to before, it was really easy, you know, 20, even 10 years ago to not really know, but just kind of guess and check when we were building products or just building teams because there weren't as many as opportunities. Like there were a lot of opportunities, right? But there weren't as many opportunities as there are today. And this is why, you know, in, in you know, the, the previous generation of building software, building subscription companies, everything was very, very focused on speed. Mm -hmm. So you had the birth of Agile, Kanban, all these different things like, hey, let's just get faster. Let's just get more productive. Hey, let's just hire more people. Let's just hire more people. Let's go really, really quick. Let's go really, really fast. And while that was definitely good advice, what ultimately ended up happening, it was, oh, now everyone's going fast. Now everyone's building quickly. Now we don't necessarily have an advantage of dev productivity, even if we continue to add people because, you know, building, building things is hard and growing teams are hard, right? And so all of a sudden we're now forced to be curious and we're forced to use tools that power the curious to basically help us understand. And I, I go back to what I said before. I think we, we were terrible at receiving feedback because not because necessarily we didn't want the feedback, although that's definitely a psychological phenomenon, but we were terrible at, you know, gathering the feedback because we just didn't, need to. And I think that there's a lot of education to be had on how to get good feedback, both, you know, kind of in a high fidelity way, like you and I talking, you know, across from one another or in a more scalable way and sending a customer survey. Yeah. I think as a product person, it's tricky, right? Because on one hand, features and product are becoming less and less different and, and important on the, on the bigger picture. But at the same time, those that do understand their customer at a deep level have a tremendous advantage of, of building good product, right? So finding a balance between the empathetic, high-fidelity uh, approach, um, you know, relative to surveys and whatnot, um, I, I guess it's being able to do both at scale, right? Yeah. Well, I think one huge misconception about surveys is that 
you automatically just listen to what the person said, mm. right? Like, and this is just the product of being in a republic or a representative democracy, right? Sure. We think that, you know, votes should automatically mean what we do, which on some level is great, you know, from a country perspective, but on another level, it's one of those things where as a product person, you have multiple different data points. You know, there's data points coming in from potentially a survey. There's data points coming in from what the market's, you know, happening. There's data coming in from how you ask the question and from whom you get the answers. And so I think it's one of those things where that's a huge excuse that people use not to collect the data, which is, well, you know, I, I don't know. I don't want to listen to it. Um, it's not going to be right. Um, I'm, you know, it's my job to make the decision. And the problem is it just doesn't work anymore like that. Now we're in a market where it's really, really important to at least understand the perspective of not only your customers, but also your team members, um, your company. And there's plenty of things, you know, we've, we've had situations and thankfully not that many where, you know, we, we had a democratic vote on certain things and, you know, we as, as an executive team chose to go in a different direction and, and we were thankfully very, very transparent and, and, you know, explained what was going on. But I think that's a really, really big misconception about surveys and things like that, which is you're not always making the decision based on the data that you find, but you definitely should understand if you are going to be making a decision that looks very different because that's going to change your approach to things. Sure. I think considering it as one input of many is, is helpful, I guess, in understanding. And on the upside, it's never been easier, right, to survey existing customers, customers who used to be customers, prospective customers. It's never been easier to get in touch with these folks. 100%. And that's why, you know, when, when we look at our company, not only when we're, you know, building features, we send out surveys. We also have, you know, consistent NPS going out. We have a very high fidelity survey that Meg, our head of people ops, meets with every single person at the company almost every single quarter. There's a lot of different things. There's no excuse for not collecting feedback. And, and I think that presents another problem, which is like, how do you actually filter the feedback? And I think that comes from starting, or at least starts with making sure you set up the survey properly in the beginning. Um, and I think that's something that Leela can teach us a little bit more about because it's not as simple as just following you know, proper statistical methodologies and things like that, it gets into actually making the survey experience proper, not sending a 45 question survey that's emailed to you where the first question is, what's your email address, but, but actually making it an enjoyable experience. And to learn a little bit more about that, let's have Lila close this out and teach us, you know, what makes a good survey. What makes a good survey? What makes good research to find out some sort of end about people, like some sort of goal? Like, what does that look like? I, know I can give you the practical answer is yeah. not too many open-ended questions okay. um, because, I mean, there's sort of a, there's a practical answer, which is, you know, you want to make sure that you get as many, uh, as many legitimate completes as you can. And sure, so sure, if sure. your survey is seven open-ended questions, you probably don't get a lot, you know, but, but you want some amount of richness. Mm -hmm. And so it's sort of, so the first thing is very practically speaking, just the balance between uh, open-ended and uh, quantitative questions so that you yeah. can roll up into insights. Beyond that, I think it depends on what you're trying to accomplish. So from a mar if I wear my marketing hat for a second, I've, sure. I've run surveys for, I mean, I lost count as yeah. I was sort of preparing to come in here. Well, I mean, types. you were in management consulting, you were in yeah. sales, right. you were I worked in, like, in product marketing, Everything events. you've done has been about research on some level. That's right. That's exactly right. <laughs> yeah. And so I think one of my favorite use cases for surveys, though, is in developing really insightful, differentiated and valuable content for whichever audience you're marketing to. Right. So I think with that... There's uh, it then, you know, you, you have to do your homework. You have to understand what else is out there because 
let's face it, there are, you know, there is a lot of content out there today sure. and it's becoming harder and harder to stand out. Yeah. But I do think you can stand out incredibly well if you just select your questions carefully. Mm. And what I've tried to do in surveys I've run is have a balance of questions. You, you sort of have to plan ahead to the output mm. and think about what are the headlines going to be? You know, you, obviously you have a hypothesis about where the, where the results will take you. So yeah. knowing that hypothesis and thinking through not only which questions will, will deliver surprising or some sort of insight that I can lay out as a challenger statement almost. Sure. And then sprinkling in enough um, fairy dust or, or sort of nuggets of fun that will make the survey or the, the insights really pop. Simple thing, I mean, I'll, I'll give you a silly example. Sure, sure. Uh, and this is not, this is off the content track, but yeah. for my first marketing all hands here, ran a survey of the team, of course. We do sure. a lot of surveying around here, I'm by the sure. way. Yeah, yeah. No idea why. <laughs> so, uh, so the point of the survey was principally to get the team's feedback on one of our company values, which is around customer centricity and listening to customers, and figure out which person on our marketing team exhibited that best exhibited that value. Mm. Right. So I really wanted to hear a firsthand perspective across the organization on yeah. who's really nailing it on that dimension. Sure. So that was a that was a really important uh, and I thought valuable and insightful and meaningful use of a survey question. Sure. The question after that was, "What's your spirit animal?" Mm which allowed me to layer in a different set oh, of content. Oh, there you go. You can like the... cross-reference that data. Actually, should have done that. The lines are like this. Yeah, should yeah, have yeah. done that, but more that it gave me the flexibility to be serious, insightful, and meaningful at one point, and then kind of fun in the next breath. Mm. And so I encourage people to think about, you know, think about that output. I do think of content as edutainment. So yeah, I, I think I try and, you know, find ways to educate, but while also keeping an eye open for opportunities to entertain. Interesting. Spirit animal. What's your spirit animal, Neil? My spirit animal? It's probably the elephant. Is it because it's so empathetic and collecting information via surveys? No, but probably it's a hard pass. But <laughs> <laughs> I don't think elephants are sending surveys anytime soon, but it's got the full package, right? It's what if animals sent surveys? What if animals actually had, like, are we the only animal that sends surveys? I guess. Probably. Although, fun fact, over the weekend, uh, we caught puffins using tools for the first time ever. What was the tool they used? Uh, it, the puffin was using a stick to scratch its back. And this is huge from an evolutionary standpoint. Well, there's a couple of other animals that have started using tools. It would be pretty wild if surveys... I think the first bird. Animals. The first bird that's using... That's pretty wild. Yeah. It's funny to think about it because surveys are a tool, right? Yeah. And I think like any tool, if you don't know how to use it properly, you can either hurt yourself or you don't get the benefit from it, right? You know, if you use a hammer in the incorrect direction, you're going to mess things up. You might hurt yourself, et cetera. And I think that... What Lila is talking about, at least in my opinion here, is not only using surveys properly, but actually, as we kind of alluded to before, using it to enhance the actual experience. Because I think we have a lot of survey fatigue. When you, you know, talk to people, and I've talked in front of lots of different rooms about, you know, customer development and doing research and things like this. And oftentimes when I ask, you know, who here, you know, loves surveys, um, there's maybe one person in an audience of 100 um, who will actually raise their hands. And most people, when I say, oh, everyone hates surveys, they're like, yeah, yeah, we don't like surveys. And I think it's it's one of those things you have to learn to use the tool. And, and because there's so much of that fatigue, you do need to make the experience great. And one of the things that we do at, at ProfitWell with our Price Intelligently product is we always recommend when you're sending an email to get feedback is being really explicit in the subject line about how long the survey is going to take. Mm. So we say share in shaping ProfitWell's future dash 60 seconds, 30 seconds. And what we found in doing customer research, and we can share this in the show notes a little bit more detailed, 
is that the proper survey, if you're not compensating someone, should really be, you know, 60 seconds max, um, which is maybe like five, six questions that you, you might be able to get away with. And it doesn't mean that don't build longer surveys. Of course you can do that, but you should make sure that someone's compensated uh, or, you know, you're having a specific, you know, hey, we're going to buy everyone lunch. You know, and you're going to sit down and take the survey if it's for, you know, team or things like that. But you want to chunk things down in a way that you're playing a multi-move game of research that if you make that experience really great by asking some of these fun questions or even publishing some of the data, which, you know, a number of people do that, you know, brings people coming back, you can actually flex that tool, that muscle that you're building um, and get that feedback that you're looking for. I think that makes a lot of sense. So much of it is expectation setting, right? When my expectations are met, you know, or exceeded, I'm happy. And and when they're not, I think I'm disappointed. Sometimes I'm legitimately happy to give feedback to products I love, right? Like, like I, I have totally influenced products uh, that I enjoy using um, by giving feedback or filling out surveys. So I'm happy to do it if I know that it's being received in a positive way. Well, and that feedback cycle, I think is super important. And we always haven't been great at that, which is collect the data mm -hmm. and then make sure that people are aware of what you did and what changes Close you made yeah. or, you know, the things that you just kind of refused. Right. Right. Like that's an interesting email to send to your customers or your users, which is like, Hey, everyone said this, we have chosen not to because of X. Mm -hmm. And then all of a sudden it's like, okay, well, maybe that's okay because now you don't have to answer all those questions about roadmap. Totally. And you can also, you know, hopefully have a plan as to how you can fit that need because that's mostly what happens with those those types of emails. You know who does this really well? Ben and Jerry's. Ben and Jerry's. Yeah. I was just at their Going factory ice cream. last week and they have this thing called the, the Flavor Graveyard. I saw this uh, on TV or something I saw recently. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's yeah, like yeah, a yeah. legit graveyard with yeah. tombstones and everything of all the features <laughs> all the flavors, flavors. Yeah, yeah, they yeah. have killed off over the years and a little bit of history around each one things like peanut butter and jelly and stuff like yeah. that yeah um but they i think it killed them based on feedback pro exactly probably and two or three have actually been brought back because of feedback but the, the lesson there is uh it gives people a space to talk about it uh honestly and uh you know customers while there may be fans of some of those um understand why you know yeah. those were those were killed off I think, and I didn't get a chance to ask Wheeler this, and maybe you should circle back with her to figure this out, but I think what's kind of fascinating is I, I've always found like retail products or CPG products, those companies that we talk to, the reason we, we help subscription companies mainly is because CPG and retail companies are typically very good at research. They're very, very good at collecting this information because I think it's been ingrained in their industry for you know decades at this particular point. Whereas SaaS and subscriptions, like the best in the world have been very good at this, but now, you know, they're, everyone's being forced to do it. And so, yeah, I think it's really, really fascinating, you know, just how important that feedback cycle is. Absolutely. So what did we learn this week? Marketing at all companies of different stages and sizes is going to be challenging, right? It's a constant evolution and, and the, the most unicorn. important things, the new it's unicorn. It's not the engineer anymore. <laughs> the most important thing is building that team around you um, to, to help you execute and, and build the company forward. Yeah, I think structuring the team properly as well. And I think another really big thing that we talked about that I, I think that can't get enough emphasis is really the concept of, of being empathetic and empowering that curiosity that you have by collecting feedback. Uh, we have one of our, you know, kind of axioms within um, one of our, our principles here at ProfitWell is feedback is non-negotiable. And I think we live that, but we could do a lot better at that when it comes to, you know, ironic given that we have a product that's fed, you know, the algorithms are fed by surveys is 
doing more and more research and just finding the time for it. And I think that's the big thing that a lot of folks kind of need to get over that fatigue and that anxiety around sending surveys and collecting feedback because it is so important to the market and just the environment that we're in today. No, absolutely. Well, that's all for this week on Protect the Hustle. If you want to thank Leela for imbuing all that wisdom on us, go on LinkedIn, her former employer, and basically share this episode tagging her and thanking for all that wisdom. And if you're not subscribed to Protect the Hustle, if you want to continue to hear Neil and I's beautiful voices, make sure you go to protectthehustle.com and subscribe or using your podcasting app of choice. We'll see you next week. This has been a Recur Studios production, the fastest growing subscription network out there. If you find use for this show, subscribe for more like it at ProfitWell.com slash Recur.